You're listening to a Score North podcast right now, and if you're a business owner, so are your customers. In fact, I could be talking about your business right now, telling the tens of thousands of loyal fans about you and sending them to your business. Find out how you can partner with your favorite Score North podcast. Visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Fill out the form, and we'll get in touch with you quickly. Once Phil, Judd, Declan, or others start talking about your company, you'll be amazed at how many fans start showing up. So visit scorenorth.com now and enter keyword partner. Hear you. You're listening to Minnesota Sports Rewind. 92-89, Timberwolves with the lead, and now this crowd is starting to believe that they'll win. Now the Bulls don't want any fouls here. They just like to play some real good defense. Marbury drives baseline, bounces it to Hammonds. To Kevin Garnett on top from 20. Garnett. Yes, sir. Beautifully done. Garnett with a 15 Man, that's courtesy of Sports Channel, 1997 Sports Channel in Chicago. We are a half hour into this episode of Minnesota Sports Rewind, focusing on the 1997 win by the Minnesota Timberwolves over Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls. At the time, it was the trademark win of the Timberwolves' rise up during that era. Um, And, of course, a year later, Stephon Marbury's ego decided that he was uh, good with it all. But Tom Hanneman, first of all, Phil Mackey here, Judd Zolgad. Before we dive in, we'd love some stories. We know that you were on the court and you were part of that broadcast team, but... How are you? And uh, it's great to great to hear you on the show here today. Phil and Judd, I'm fine. Thanks, uh, thanks for giving me a call. Uh, you know, most Wolves fans, and I'm in that grouping as well, have spent most of their life trying to forget about games rather than remember. But th- this was one that uh, <laughs> that stands out, and uh, for all good reasons, it took nine seasons. Uh, for the franchise to have a, a winning record in that year, 97, 98, uh, was the first time. And, uh, I, I know that there was some mocking going on at the time, uh, with, uh, the, the Bulls announced team afterwards after the game about, yeah, do you guys look like you were celebrating a championship? And indeed, I think that, that fans felt that way. It was the closest thing that we had come into. And to beat the mighty Michael Jordan, who went on to continue a you know a string of championships with that Bulls team that year, uh, was a pretty big deal. And uh, about as exciting a moment until you got to the uh, uh, the, the series win uh, years later against Denver and then uh, Sacramento. But uh, it, it it was an amazing night in in so many ways. I know you've already delved into the. Uh, the Jordan component that night, and uh, it, it it made it interesting. But the, the fact was, very few people had any idea that any of that was going on at the time. So, uh, being a sideline reporter, uh, I, I did the halftime show that, uh, that we did every game, and and uh, there's no Jordan. Yeah, and you're you're looking for Michael Jordan, of course, because you're following his every move and. So I run backstage and uh, to the locker room area and uh, don't see anyone. And after a couple minutes, here's Michael walking out of uh, Sheldon Burns, the team physician's uh, door. And he'd been on the phone and with Tim Hallam, the Bulls' longtime PR director. And uh, they, Tim said he's not talking. And we were able to find out, but not immediately what was going on, but 
yeah, Michael was 0 for 5, I think, uh, in the third quarter of that game. And, and obviously it weighed heavily upon him because he didn't know whether it was true or not and uh, was able to find out later. But that uh, kind of a, a rugged second half, and that played into it. But uh, it, the game stood out for a lot of reasons, and most of them were very good. So, Tom, the, the, uh, the story was that Jordan or the Wolves got the call correct and passed on the information because clearly this is in the pre-cell phone days that Jordan's uh, mom had been rushed to the hospital. And then I think they got subsequent calls. Did we ever uh, get a lead in retrospect as to where the uh, crank calls might have come from? Because that is that that now is impossible. But going back and seeing the uh, turmoil that the guy went through that night, um, that would be a lot to go through for anybody. Yeah, it would. It would. Yeah. Uh, Dolores Jordan, his mom, uh, and the call came into the Target Center switchboard, as I understand, and a uh, security guard, and I don't know why this happened, approached Jordan uh, as the team was leaving the floor at halftime, and of course, you know, he has no idea. Right. No one has any idea whether it's true or not, and his mind is immediately focused elsewhere, so... um, uh, still, this is a guy that in his career averaged over 29 points a game against the Wolves. So uh, to have an off night, he scored 33 points on an off night. Yeah. Uh, it tells you something about the guy. Uh, what are one or two of your favorite interactions or stories about young Kevin Garnett in, in that in that first three or four years rising up before, you know, before Stephon Marbury decided he wanted to leave and before things got a little tumultuous? What, what are a couple of your favorite anecdotes you can share with us? Well, there's a, not, a lot of them. Uh, they're all in the book, uh, which hasn't been written yet. Uh, <laughs> By the way, if that book gets written, we will plug the you-know-what out of it. So let us know. <laughs> you know, the problem with writing books like that, kind of tell-alls, and, and most of them are very happy, is uh, you end up bruising a lot of uh, <laughs> friendships and, and egos. So. It's, it's probably kept a, a few books from being written. But stories can be told. And, uh, you know, we love KG from, from the moment that he arrived and, uh, you know, the, the, the first drills that he went through in St. Cloud at the time uh, where the team uh, was starting their training camp and, you know, tossing his cookies into a garbage can nearby. You know, he was so excited and so amped and, and thinking, you know, is this kid always like this? And, of course, we, we came to find out, yes. I got a chance uh, because I was working sidelines and working as a reporter doing feature stories. We had to have a couple every game uh, to get over his, to his apartment uh, his rookie year. He lived uh, in a spot across from Ridgedale and had a couple dogs. And this is at a time that the department's was filled with potato chips and uh, uh, a lot of junk food. A, a very young and raw Kevin Garnett, but I, uh, I just I love the guy. I mean, it was hard not to love him. He was so open and so honest. And I feel badly in that uh, the last few years of his time with the Timberwolves before he came back, uh, there <laughs> this was not quite the same guy. I think a lot of people felt and. Uh, I think some of the early years of Kevin Garnett were forgotten in the uh, in the processes. A lot of us have looked back here with the uh, Hall of Fame news uh, this week. But uh, uh, Kevin it was a character and uh, was someone that 
was interested in in interacting with people and he did so many things that he asked me not to report on not to, and and this was charitable stuff uh for the first 8 years or so that he was with the wolves uh so many of the great stories really are, are tough to kind of clean up a little bit and that sounds awful but uh, uh, he, he just was a remarkable player, and, and everyone will say the same thing about Kevin Garnett that spent any time with him. There was no off button at any time, uh, whether it was practice, whether it was game, whether it was on the plane. You know, this is back in a time early on, guys, when uh, w- the media, even those of us working for the team, were asked uh, to the back of the plane to play cards with players, you know, and it, it was obviously they're out of our league economically, but it was a, a quarter a point type of thing. Uh, you know, those days changed dramatically uh, in, in a very short time when, you know, when stories of Reggie Miller uh, and Charles Barkley dropping $30,000 a hand on some of the poker games that they played. But uh, uh, I've I got a ton of stories about KG and uh, so many of them are, are off the court, but uh, all I can tell you is uh, really a remarkable guy, and I'm I'm excited for uh, what lies ahead for him this this fall. Pretty pretty cool thing. So, Tom, uh, to, to go back to that night and that game too, and I hadn't watched that that game since that night, but it was so intriguing to watch it to see how how hip and cool the wolves were how, how the fans truly had bought in and and that's a building that, that's a young that's a young nucleus of players with veterans at the time who were uh who were uh, stability factors but tell me this in watching that the one thing that stood out to me crystal clear was the heartbeat of that team that not uh, kg was but that Steph was and as you watched that game from the sideline that night what was your feeling on Steph how do you feel that if Steph hadn't forced it his way out, things would have gone for the Wolves? And among the sad things in this team's history, and there's lots of those things, where does that uh, forced divorce back in 1999 now rank? Well, uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't tell you how excited uh, we were working for the team at the time to have found a way to capture Steph Marbury in the trade for Ray Allen. Uh, you look back on it now and you wonder, what if? What if it hadn't been made? But that's that's another story. Uh, I, there's some unforgettable things with Steph Marbury. Uh, the morning that we learned, and we're driving over in the, on the team bus uh, for shoot-around in Oakland, that Steph had forced his way into a trade. Um, and we knew there had been some conversation, but so Steph is, is on the bus and gets off and, uh, you know, he's good morning, good afternoon, and good night with a smile on his face to people. Sam Mitchell, when he heard about what had transpired, got so angry uh, right in front of Steph, took the rack of basketballs, and flung them at the, at the uh, Oracle, uh, flung them into the second deck, kicked them over. I mean, he was in many ways a team leader. 
certainly at that time and for many seasons, he felt that Steph was disrespecting the team and the players and, uh, uh, you know, people backed down to Sam Mitchell. When Sam Mitchell uh, got into the altercation a year earlier in the playoffs against uh, Houston, against Kevin Willis, I think it was game two and got a flagrant two, Charles Barkley uh, told me afterwards, because I figured, you know, Charles would defend Kevin Willis. He said, oh, no, you don't mess with Sam Mitchell. He said, that, that's one guy that I would not mess with. And it, it was kind of a turning point in the franchise that they were thought of as, as not the pushover, even though Houston swept that series. But Sam was livid and let Steph know, and, and Steph kind of quietly went away. Now, many years later, I think it was 2007, I'm doing a, a Wolves game uh, with Jim Pete, and I look back about five rows, and there's Steph Marbury. He had retired, uh, well, he wasn't playing for the NBA. His, his career was done before he went over to China. And during a commercial break, I got up and walked over, and I knew him fairly well and, and was excited to see him and, and said, hey, would you – sit down with us for a while. Fans would love to hear from you. And to my surprise, he said, yes. And we had uh, intermixed within that quarter. I thought one of the most interesting conversations with a guy, all the questions that you asked me about, where would the team be? What would have happened had he decided uh, to stay and not let his ego and, and uh, all the people around him who told him in, in New York that you're better and you deserve more and you shouldn't be there. He owned up and said it was it was a horrible mistake on my part. I think about it a lot. Wow. Uh, he he was contrite. He was I was shocked. Uh, and and as sad as it, the chapter was, I was kind of pleased that a he had grown up and b that he understood what had occurred and what he missed out on. But I, I think he was all in and understanding how special that Timberwolves team would have been had he stayed, uh, which. You know, you remember him talking about what he missed in, in New York. I miss opening the window at night on a winter night and hearing cabs honking endlessly. And I thought, <laughs> well, I don't know how many of us will miss opening the window at night in a winter situation in New York or Minneapolis. But uh, I, I do think he missed it, but <laughs> he messed up. And and I, I, I think he realized it even back then. Yeah. Um so Tom Hanneman, I, it, it's my belief that you you bring up the Ray Allen thing. I think I think this holds true if Stephon Marbury stays, and I think this holds true if they just keep Ray Allen in the nineteen ninety six draft. Because Stephon Marbury, just to just to loop this around to my to my point, Stephon Marbury played ten more years in the NBA after the Timberwolves traded him and finished above five hundred once legitimately. I'm not counting his last year in Boston where he just kind of came in as like the third guard off the bench. Um, I think if he would have stayed with the Timberwolves, I think he was a winning player under Flip. I think he was a winning player with Kevin Garnett and Ego and everything you just talked about uh, got the best of him and he regrets it. But there was a soft spot in the NBA in like 2004 through oh, yeah. 2007 before LeBron James took over the league and after Michael Jordan was gone and after the Lakers dynasty had kind of dissolved. And yes, you still had the Spurs and you still had formidable teams. But if KG is emerging into his physical prime, and Stefan Marbury had stayed the course. I, I honestly think we're talking about championships. Or if you had kept Ray Allen. I mean, I think 
just putting a legitimate sidekick around Kevin Garnett and building that thing and and riding it for seven or eight years, I think we're talking a championship. Yeah, NBA. I, I agree, Phil. I, NBA titles are all about windows, and uh, I think that the Wolves were set up uh, with either one of those players uh, to have a window. You know, Marbury was just 21 years old when he left the Wolves. Um, you know, and he goes on. He had seven straight seasons where he averaged over 20 points a game, uh, and you know, got what he thought he wanted in terms of. Uh, the adulation, and he was the man on those teams for the most part. And But what he missed out on and uh, <laughs> was something far more important. And, and sadly, in the process, Wolves fans missed out on that as well, and, and they're well aware of that. But fortunately, there were no other disappointments that would come <laughs> in the future of for the Timberwolves, so that helps that it was the only time. By the way, there is one breaking right now that I, we, we, we'll we get to it here in a second. There's some breaking KG news, but go ahead, Judd. So, Tom, do do you miss two things, the parquet floor and long twos? Because, baby, in watching that 97 <laughs> game, I actually missed the parquet floor, but everybody and their brother shot long twos back then, and really, if, if you shot a three, I think you got looked at a little bit sideways. You know, that season, I took a look at this uh, uh, this morning. That season, the Wolves, as a team, attempted 308 three-point shots. Mm. And Steph Curry, you know, has has attempted 889 in a single season in his career. And so, obviously, things have changed dramatically. Yeah, and the analytics didn't exist but it, it's kind of commonsensical, isn't it, that uh, <laughs> that a long two is maybe the worst shot you can take. But uh, things were evolving. I love that court. I, I did. I, I, I I'm really serious. Yeah, it. it was great. Yeah, it, it was terrific. And uh, yeah, I'm amazed, guys, how uh, how loyal Timberwolves fans have remained through the ups and downs. And it's sadly primarily downs. This is a franchise that I love. I worked for the uh, team for 23 years. Love to see them rise up, and we're all hoping it would happen. But uh, people love it, and maybe it is. Uh, maybe it is that so many of us grew up with this franchise, and so they're in a sweet spot that way. I know that that inaugural year when there's over a million fans, and the Metrodome wasn't exactly a, a, a conducive basketball arena, uh, but people were just fired up and excited and uh, uh, there's there were a lot of great memories sadly it took uh, as mentioned nine years to get something uh, like a win over Michael Jordan and the Bulls but uh, now you you look at what the Wolves went on and did against Seattle in after that win later in the spring and uh, I agree with the premise that this team with Steph Marbury especially, you know, Charles Barkley gathered Marbury and Garnett at the end of the first ever playoff series the Wolves were involved in. The Rockets swept them, but the last game, uh, Minnesota showed, uh, I think that the potential was, was really there. And Barkley grabs these two guys and said, hey, you guys, you two stay together. You're going to get some rings. And I don't think he was doing it just to be kind or yeah. nice. I think Charles Barkley really believed that. Yeah. 
That's Tom Hanneman, everybody. Longtime Timberwolves announcer, reporter, broadcaster, everything, um, and storyteller. And we appreciate you coming on this episode of Minnesota Sports Rewind. And we will not put you on the spot with this, but when we uh, when we hang up here, uh, go to The Athletic and read the story about Kevin Garnett, the Q&A with Kevin Garnett that just came out where he... Uh, he uh, unveils some of his feelings about Glenn Taylor and pour a stiff drink, even though it's only eleven fifty-one in the morning right now. All right, <laughs> I can hardly wait. Right. More wolves, <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks, right. Tom. See you, Tom. That is uh, Tom Hanneman, just one of the best dudes in the industry, one of the nicest guys you'll ever will come across. So it's not often we get breaking news during an episode of Minnesota Sports Rewind that fits the episode of Minnesota Sports but Rewind. We just but, got it. But we're just going to read this. This is from an athletic Q&A with Kevin Garnett, and there's a bunch of stuff they dive into. But uh, the question was in regards to the Celtics retiring Kevin Garnett's jersey before the Timberwolves will retire his jersey. And Kevin Garnett says, quote, Glenn Taylor knows where I'm at. I'm not entertaining it. First of all, it's not genuine. Number two... He's getting pressure from a lot of fans, and I guess the community there. Glenn and I had an understanding before Flip died, and when Flip died, that understanding went with Flip. For that, I won't forgive Glenn. I won't forgive him for that. I thought he was a straight-up person, straight-up businessman, and when Flip died, everything went with him. There's no reason to complain. Just continue to move on. My years in Minnesota and in that community, I cherish. At this point, I don't want any dealings with Glenn Taylor or Taylor Corporation or anything that has to do with him. I love my Timberwolves. I'll always love my guys. I'll always love the people who who bleep with me there. Yeah, that's I'll, uh, yeah, they're yeah, be careful. There's a few bleeps in there. I'll always have a special place for the city of Minneapolis and the state of Minnesota in my heart. But I don't do business with snakes. I don't do business with snake mfers. Mm-hmm, that's not nice. Either. I try not to do business with openly snakes or people. Who are snake like? It's a lot of snakes. That's, not, that's a lot. Sna- not a snake guy myself, so I can I get what you're saying. Indiana Jones wasn't a snake that's guy. A either. lot of snake. A lot of snakes. Right yeah. So yeah. So um, it's not. Uh, so it's not going to uh, no. take place for quite some time. We'll do a deep dive into that on Mackie and Joe with Rami today. I want to wrap this episode here by asking you this question: When you go back and look at Kevin Garnett and Stephon Marbury and the game that we are diving into, which is the first real trademark breakthrough win in Timberwolves history, the win over Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls at Target Center in 1997. One of the things I thought of when I watched that game play out and the energy and just the, the, the bond between Marbury and Garnett Mm -hmm. and flip and the, and the fans, like everything was just this symbiotic relationship that had the wolves on a trajectory to potentially take over the Western conference. Mm -hmm. And yes, they popped up a few years later and they went to the Western conference finals and Sam Cassell, the trail Sprewell. But really like we've spent most of the last 20 to 25 years trying to recapture yeah. what we felt in the late nineties, yes. right? With a couple little pop-ups here yes. and there. Do you think Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell realize or even want the responsibility that they have when it comes to Wolves fans and putting the organization back on that level? Oh boy, I sure don't have that. that. On paper, that's the responsibility that they have been given. It's a different era, different time. People are different now. I don't know that I can say I've seen that. And keep in mind, too, as Tom said, and this is the most important thing, and this can be bad at times, but it also can be good, Phil. KG was wired differently. Cat's not wired like that. KG was going to, in his mind, win. And he was going to do exactly what that took. 
And Flip then went and got him that, that complimentary piece and in 1996 that was a point guard who was fantastic. Do I think that you can do it with a point guard and center that you currently have? I have no clue. I just, really, it was so much fun to go back and watch that game, though, to realize where this team was at at one time. And unless you fully comprehend it, I honestly think it right now it's damn near impossible to understand that. Like, if I just tell you that, mm-hmm. so if you just tuned in and you're like, this is fun, man. So the Wolves were like, I can tell you that and articulate it to you, but understanding that is tough. 92-89, Timberwolves with the lead, and now this crowd is starting to believe that they'll win. Now the Bulls don't want any fouls here. They just like to play some real good defense. Marbury drives baseline, bounces it to Hammonds, to Uh-oh. Kevin Garnett on top from 20. Garnett. Yes, sir. Beautifully done. Garnett with a 15-footer. Yeah. Declan, where you, were, you were growing up. I'm assuming you kind of grew up in the KG era. So, too, true right? story. This is actually the first sporting game I ever attended. Really, dude? I was five years old. That's and um, it, I remember, I briefly remember the significance of it just because um, my dad remember telling me that it was the first time we're actually going to beat Michael Jordan. So <laughs> well, I, don't, he called, I don't, he, he called it before he the did, game. He called it. I remember driving in the, in the 91 Volvo that we had <laughs> to the game. Um, and yeah, it was one of my earliest memories. My uncle had season tickets. So yeah, it was the first sporting event actually I ever attended. And yeah, KG and Marbury, man, I had a Marbury jersey growing up. Um, I think it was a hand-me-down for my brother, technically, but I, that's, you're right that they were the most polarizing athletes in town at the time. And they were, for the late 90s kids, they're athletes. I mean, this was... The, the, the 1997 Twins were a disaster. The North Stars were gone. <laughs> yeah. And the Vikings were just sort and of... Moss was not uh, here yet. Yeah, you know? That's exactly right. This was it, man. This was it. This was fun. And that's a wrap on another episode. Fun, that was a fun game to watch, Minnesota man. Sports Rewind. You can binge all of our episodes anywhere you find podcasts.